Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book 5 that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp. dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter four. Back to the burrow. By twelve o'clock the next day, Harry's school trunk was packed with his school things and all his most prized possessions. The invisibility cloak he had inherited from his father, the broomstick he had gotten from Sirius, the enchanted map of Hogwarts he had been given by Fred and George Weasley last year. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and I'm Matt Potts, and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we get started, Matt, I just have to remind people of how many exciting things we have going on. We have a waitlist for the Harry Potter pilgrimage with me. In Casper Takaya, we have a Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage that's on sale. We have a romance writing workshop that's happening soon. We have a summer camp that is open for registration, and most importantly, we have live shows. You, Matt Potts, me, Vanessa Zoltan, on the road, entertaining the people, gathering around sacred texts. We're going on tour like rock stars. We're Led Zeppelin. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story on the theme of fun. And I'm so excited to do so. I think it's gonna be great fun to tell the story. As you know, Vanessa, my family and I just returned from a uh, summer vacation—the first vacation we've taken in a couple of years because of the pandemic—and also the first international travel that we've done in a long time. And so we went to France, and we were very excited to go to France. I had never been to France before. My kids had never been to France before. Colette had been to France before, and was. Telling us all the wonderful things about France, and we've been thinking about this trip for a couple of years, right? Like Sam got really fascinated by the Eiffel Tower when he was a toddler, and you know we watched Notre Dame burn, and so the 
kids were like really interested in seeing the cathedral and like investigating the renovations and the repairs. And beforehand, we had a lot of ideas in our heads about like what the fun of this trip would look like, right? We were going to go to the Louvre. We were going to stroll the gardens at Versailles. We were going to stand together from the top of the Eiffel Tower and take a selfie. So we arrived in Paris a few weeks ago along with everybody else. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure a few of our listeners did not go to Paris the last three weeks, but some of you I bet did along with many, 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 many people. It was very hot. I speak in Celsius now, so it was like almost 40 for many of the days that we were there. Some of our listeners will know what that means. Other listeners, it was like in the mid-90s when we first arrived, high 90s. Cool days were in the 80s. There's no air conditioning in any place, you know, where we were staying. And it was very, very crowded. So, like, we got there. We're like, hooray, we're in France after a busy year. Let's get tickets to all the things. And then we went to the Louvre to get tickets. And sorry, the Louvre, you can't go to the Louvre unless you request tickets two months in advance. And we were like, let's go to the gardens at Versailles. Let's go. Same thing. Three-hour wait to get the top of the Eiffel Tower, all like these ideas of what we're going to do to have so much fun in France would have been not very much fun to try to do. It would have required like three hour standing in line waits in crowded places in the heat. And so we were just like, you know, like, let's just have fun. And so we just went out. We walked around the base of the Eiffel Tower. There were so many people and everyone was happy. And the sparkle bulbs went off on the hour after dark at the Eiffel Tower. And we walked around and got crepes and waffles and patisserie and ate cheese and bread for dinner in our underpants in the Airbnb. And it was so much fun, right? It lived up to none of the kind of anticipations or expectations we had placed upon it beforehand. But we were with each other and we were happy and we were silly and we just kind of enjoyed what we could enjoy and didn't let ourselves be disappointed at what we were not going to have the chance to enjoy. And it was a really fun trip. And, you know, we're all really grateful, grateful for it. And so the reason I tell that story is just because fun's a tricky thing, right? I mean, I think all of us have an intuitive sense of what fun is and what makes a thing fun. But fun is kind of hard to plan. Like you can can come up with ideas about what you think is going to make something fun. And you could spend a lot of time being stressed out about following through on those plans. And, And other times, like the thing you never plan, the thing you never expect becomes the most fun thing. So one of the things I really learned about fun from this trip, and I think it's something I already knew, but it's a lesson you have to learn over and over again, right? Is just that fun doesn't have anything to do with expectations. It has something more to do with attitude and the people you're with. If you're with people you love and who make you happy, anything can be fun as long as you're just kind of celebrating and enjoying what you have in front of you rather than anxious about what else you might be able to do or or could otherwise be doing. You know, I was thinking about a similar thing that like, I've had a lot of fun, you know, in hospital waiting rooms or right when when everything has like not gone to plan. Sometimes that can actually be a tremendous amount of fun and that there's something subversive about fun in those situations that there are moments where we feel as though fun isn't allowed to us. And when do we feel permission to have fun? I love that you guys exploited this moment that things didn't go according to plan, but also there was a lot of planning, right? There was an Airbnb that was planned and you took time off work, right? Like, and so sometimes fun can happen anywhere, but also sometimes it does need to be set aside. You weren't on your computer, you know, it's fun is this like weird ecosystem. Yeah, you know, at the at the Eiffel Tower, right, we decided we did not have time to go up to the top. And that had been a thing that we wanted to do that was going to be part of our fun Paris vacation. And so instead, we like went to souvenir shops at the bottom and just like 
tried on berets and put on silly aprons, right? And just like, if you had told me before the trip, you're going to have an amazing time in France, you're going to go into the souvenir shop, right. and you are going to wear a beret. I would have been like, that's not worth a trip to France, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I want to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, right? But instead, like, that's one of the highlights of the trip, because we were just like there, and there was really great energy, and it was it was still beautiful. The sun was beautiful, and the people were happy, and the lights were going off in the tower. And, like, I was in a silly apron and beret, and we were laughing and taking pictures, and it was great. Well, Matt, I'm so glad that you guys had so much fun. Your family is a lot of fun. All you have to do in your family is say number two, and your whole family cracks up. Oh, my so. gosh. I just gone overboard with Danny. <laughs> and number two. All the puns. Vanessa, you are going to recap Chapter 4 in 30 seconds or less. And I am going to have fun doing it. I can't wait to listen. Thank you. I've decided that 30-second recaps are soapbox time. It's just time for me to share opinions. Okay. Interesting. So should we change it from the 30-second recap to the 30-second editorial commentary? Maybe. On things that may or may not pertain to Harry Potter? Maybe. Let's go. Count me in and we'll see what it is. We'll see how it goes. Three, two, one, go. So this is a chapter about toxic masculinity. Vernon feels as though he is going to be invaded by the wizarding world. And so he puts on a suit and he's being very aggressive. And he's like, everyone has to be on time and blah, blah, blah. And then Arthur Weasley shows up and he doesn't check about how he's going to arrive. And so the transportation goes poorly. So he violently ruins this living room. And Fred and George are like, do you know what's funny? Exploding someone's tongue. Ha, ha, ha. And so they do that. And Arthur Weasley is like, I've got the cure. And nobody is communicating. Excellent 30-second opinion, Vanessa. (laughs) Thank you. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry is waiting for the Weasleys to arrive, and they're wondering if he'll come by car. And Harry says, I guess they will. He hasn't really thought about it. And Vernon's like, it better be a nice car. And they don't arrive by car. They arrive in a fireplace, and they blow out the fireplace. And there's screaming and lots of activity. And and Ron, not Ron, who are the brothers? Fred and George. They go up, and they look for for um, for Dudley. And then they leave some toffees around. And, and then Dudley's tongue gets very big. And Arthur says, I can fix it. But they won't let him fix it, because why would they? Because they're scared. And they all go away. Vanessa, tell me about toxic masculinity. Tell me about the fun of toxic masculinity. So Matt, I think to me, this was a fascinating chapter to read through the theme of fun because the only fun that is being had in this chapter is at other people's expense, right? And it was making me wonder about whether fun, in order for fun to be good, if it like has to be collaborative or consensual because... I think that the Weasleys have a lot of fun in this chapter. Mr. Weasley's super excited to see electricity and to like see muggles and muggle clothes. And Fred and George are really excited to try out the toffees on Dudley and to gawk at the fat kid. And I mean, like Ron, I think might be having a genuine sort of fun. He's like really excited to see Harry and like pick up Harry. And then Harry... The one use of the word fun in this chapter is Harry, at the end of the chapter, he doesn't want to get into the fireplace to take the flu network back to the burrow because it's too much fun to watch Dudley's tongue get engorged. I use the word toxic masculinity to describe this. I do think that one of the aspects of toxic masculinity is that there are cultural pressures and therefore eventually cultural permissions for men to behave a certain way. And I 
really do think that if it wasn't for toxic masculinity, Arthur Weasley would have gotten some consensus on whether it was okay to blow up this wall. But Arthur lives in a world in which he can do something and sort of clean up later. And Vernon is putting on his best suit in order to like put on some sort of armor. And I think this chapter to me is where all these different forms of toxicity come up against each other and explode into a lot of violence. So I guess my question is, like, is magic an analogy for toxic masculinity the way that we take it as an analogy for white supremacy sometimes? Because it seems to me that the busting open of the fireplace is is about him having magical power. I mean, masculinity, like every kind of toxicity, has to do with power. Power is toxic, right? right? And what's happening in that space is that Arthur has access to a power which makes him oblivious to how his action would affect the people around him. I think in that particular social situation between him and Vernon, that's not a masculinity that gives him like power in that situation. It's the fact that he has the capacity to blow open their fireplace and then repair it afterwards, right? And it's also, I think what's really telling about this example, it's also what makes them not trust him when actually all he wants to do is help. Because why would they trust him? They don't understand. They don't know what's going on. And he just blew out their fireplace. And his kids just, like, made their kid potentially suffocate on his own tongue. Like, why would they trust him to fix it, even though every intention is good? And so, I mean, I think that, like, the use of the language of masculinity and toxicity is really valuable here because it can help us think through how power shapes relationships shapes the way that people who hold power are oblivious to what their power feels like in the world and how it lands on other folks. And so I think that's it's it's really helpful as an analogy to think through the power relations as they're happening in this scene and then by analogy from this scene to think about okay how does how does power work in my own life given the privileges and powers I have how does it work in the lives of other people like how do people land on me how do I land on other people in ways that I can't even pay attention to, and it's hard for me to imagine myself out of, right? I really take your point. I'm trying to figure out, there was something visceral, and I think that in my body, I find that it's white men in power who invade my space in this way, and I think just based on some, like, recent moments in my life, I felt Arthur barging in like that as, like, oh, my God, white men's entitlement to be like, I'm going to just come in and I'm going to be the way I'm going to be. And I look, it's for really good intentions and I'm going to fix it on my way out. And so I think I was projecting my own stuff onto this. But yeah, I think it's all sorts of power. And I think that there are really good intentions involved here. But the cultural differences, I absolutely think that this is experienced as a violence even prior to the tongue incident. Yeah. No, you're right. And I like I just want to name that it's I mean, I don't want to speak for your personal experience, but just our public political experience. We also know that men, especially white men in power, feel entitled to tell women what to do with their lives, their bodies, et cetera. Right. And so I, this is what reading a sacred text means. It brings you you bring yourself to it. And so I'm grateful for the phrasing because I think it does shed light on where the power is in this room and in this scenario and how it is wielded by people who are even trying to wield it well and carefully. Because it's easy for us or for me to look at Fred and George and say like, oh, that practical joke is toxic masculinity that's reveling in the suffering of someone else. Right. Right. By making them look foolish, by making them look weak. That's toxic masculinity. But what your comment really points out that like it's a difference in 
degree, but not in kind from what what Arthur's doing, which is he's got good intentions, right? But also he is not understanding the kind of discomfort and suffering he's causing in somebody else, which is a particular kind of ignorance or lack of willingness to become aware. I mean, the tricky thing is you if you're not aware, you're not aware. But so you have to fault people not for not being aware, but for not being willing to become aware, not being willing to be transformed by the other when they find something that they have to acknowledge that they don't understand. It's also, you know, I'm so glad you're pushing me. It's right, like, because it is, it's about all of the powers. It's also sort of like imperialist, right? Which I know Americans have this problem too. And I'll speak for myself. I go to other countries and I don't bother super, you know, learning about their customs and really trying to understand what it is that I'm walking into. And like, that's part of what Arthur does. He puts their fireplace on the flu network, but he doesn't like look at the layout of their living room, right? Like, I don't know what he could do, but it's just interesting the things, and I'm not judging Arthur. I'm trying to use him to reflect on the mistakes that I make in my life so that I can try my best to not make those mistakes. You know, it's making sure that if I'm bringing a host gift to someone that I like, don't bring pork into a Muslim person's house, but also don't assume that all Muslim people don't eat pork, right? Or like whatever it is. And these things are so hard, but I do think as a British, magical, white, powerful man who can just put someone's fireplace on the flu network and not write yeah. in a letter, we will be arriving by your fireplace. Yeah. Like there are just so many mistakes he makes here. Our beloved yeah. Arthur. Yeah. I mean, the more we talk about it, the more it is clear that like so much of his action is guided by just presumptions he makes because he's ignorant of what people with relatively fewer powers, what what their lives are like and what their experiences are like. Right. And to that degree, it really is a helpful metaphor or analogy by which to look at how many, many different kinds of power are imposed upon folks and how people kind of live under the weight of them. And I also think that Vernon in his life is in a similar position of power, right? He is a white upper middle class man. He's a boss who gets to yell at his secretary. He is the sole breadwinner in his family. He brings people over and makes racist jokes. He's put on his biggest suit. And I think that the fact that he usually is in that position of power is what makes him unwilling to listen to Arthur and is what makes this so contentious so quickly. Yeah. Right. If he was someone who was acculturated to having less power, that would not make what Arthur did okay. But I think that part of the reason why this becomes so acrimonious so quickly is because neither of them know how to go into this conversation with humility and curiosity. I mean, there's a a line from the chapter about that, right? We're inside Harry's mind. And it says that Vernon put on the suit not because he was trying to be a polite host— Or in that more kind of vulnerable, I want to make a good impression upon these folks who are coming. It was more like an assertion of sort of like a power suit, right? Like, oh, you, you, I'm someone to be dealt with. You should take me seriously. Almost because he has to be in the situation of being vulnerable to somebody else in a way that we know he doesn't like. I mean, this is why Harry has been using kind of the threat of Sirius so far in this book, because it's like this one person before whom Vernon doesn't feel like he has power, right? And that's why Terry trots him out. And that's why Vernon puts on a suit right now. Like, there is all this posturing going on. And it goes down to the the anxiety about what kind of car they drive and how are they going to arrive and all that stuff. And the reason I think that fun is part of this is because Arthur went in just expecting to have fun. He was like, this is going to be fun. I'm going to meet some muggles. I'm going to pick up Harry. And I know that that is when I offend people, right? Is when I like 
go to a country and I'm like, I'm so excited, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to see Italian people and they're going to talk like this and the food like this. Right. And so I, I forget that, oh my God, it's a Catholic country and I should cover my arms when I go into a church and right. Like, I feel like sometimes if you're a person with power, you can think of things as fun and therefore risk being like, it's not fun for everyone. It is something else to other people. I'm at the church just to look at the Pieta be like, isn't that pretty? But other people are there praying and I shouldn't just be taking pictures and whispering. Yeah. The car thing is also part, we're talking about fun and practical jokes. I think it's part of the joke of the chapter that Rowling is trying to pull off, right? Which is that like, it's making Vernon look small. The Dursleys are made to look small or petty, I should say, throughout these books. And in this situation, you know, all his posturing is about what kind of car do they drive? Is it going to be a nicer car than me? Like, who's got the best car? Because car is a status symbol, right? And they blow through the fireplace, right? Like, it's like totally yeah. upends even his system of of status right. and completely blows it out of the water, which is as readers, you know, especially ones who are sympathetic to Harry. And this is kind of leading to other stuff that happens in the chapter and that has happened before, like there is some schadenfreude when, you know, some pleasure at misfortune that comes to the Dursleys because they're painted as such unlikable at best folks. But that leads to the, like this question of the other prank, the prank that Fred and George pull on Dudley. I mean, it, they, you know, they drop some toffees, intentionally leave one behind or some behind knowing that Dudley will not be able to resist it. And Dudley eats it kind of off camera, right? It's not, we do not, that part's not narrated. We just see him with a wrapper and his tongue becoming engorged. And the Weasley twins think it's hilarious, right, as they disappear into the flu network. And and you're right, though, like the one use of this word, I think, in the chapter comes at the end when when Arthur is trying to fix it and causing more stress, even though he is the only one who can fix it in that situation. And I think he's doing everything he can do, but he hasn't built trust. And so it's not going well. And Harry says he has to miss the fun by leaving. So. If I could make a quick turn by etymology corner, the word fun comes from a a Middle English or Old English word that means actually to fool or to deceive. So like it actually meant like to be silly, right? And that word actually comes from the same root as the word fond. Fond used to mean like mentally ill or not sane, not fully sane. Yeah. And so there, there is like this sense of like, I wonder if there's like a mean streak behind fun. Fun. I wonder yeah. if there is, you know, your, one of your initial questions was, can we have fun at the expense of others or should real fun always be in collaboration and cooperation? And, you know, the original story I told about my family in France, I think, was one of fun as collaboration or cooperation. But now what you're telling me, right, it makes me think about, like, who owned the shop where we were walking in and wearing the berets and putting on the aprons and what is their life like? And, like, you know, like, at whose expense is fun being had? And this is not me, like, trying to necessarily guilt trip myself on this family, but just, like, you know, the tourist experience is one of folks dropping into another situation which they don't understand and enjoying it and maybe enjoying it in ways that are they're not even aware of the ways that they're imposing upon it and then leaving and saying oh wasn't that fun (laughs) right (laughs) but what did it actually look like i mean that's it's part of the reason why travel is important so you can get to know folks and learn to see what you cannot see but it's also part of the risk of it which is that there's always something you're not seeing and there are always people on the other side of of your actions and this kind of etymology of fun and this prank which is at the expense of dudley returns me to your initial question, which at first I was like, no, of course, fun should never be at the expense of others. It should always be collaborative. (laughs) But I think that's maybe a naive sense of how human relations work, that power always exists and 
and we can say, oh, it doesn't in this situation, and then feel good about it. But actually, in most situations, it does. And it probably bears some reflecting upon. Yeah, I think that being a human being in like the year of our Lord 2022, I feel like The Good Place talked about this best, right? Like it's really hard to not be complicit by yeah. doing anything, you know, like yeah. we belong to our local pond and it is like, I'm like, we are displacing the fish in this pond, you know, and like kids play with the fish and I'm like, please don't play with the fish. And I don't want to lecture other people's kids, but I don't like the way that they treat the fish in the pond. They like throw rocks, right? Like I feel like often the word pure comes with fun. Like it was pure fun, right? Oh yeah. It's like, where can we actually have pure fun? And like, do you have to be sitting in a room with no air conditioning, using no electricity with wood that was used by a tree that fell on its own and right like it almost feels not possible to have yeah. fun in a way that isn't at something's expense and yet what is life without joy and laughter and like yeah. bonding in an airbnb about cheese and trying on silly berets yeah so i i'm again like i'm not trying to come down too hard on arthur yeah. And even Fred and George, who are, you know, teenagers. But we know that these are not black and white things, but that we're all living somewhere in the gray. And, you know, we all have different capacity for these things. But I certainly don't want there to be no fun just because, you know, you have to get in the car to drive to do the thing. Yeah. But what Fred and George do is mean. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's clearly at all this expense and they know it. I mean, Dudley is awful to Harry. I, totally. They're standing up for Harry. I think if you ask these 15-year-olds, was that the right thing to do? I think at their level of development, they would probably quite totally. appropriately say like, yeah, he's awful to Harry. And we were giving him a little what for, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Right? I don't think that's a great moral analysis, but it's what appropriate to probably their stage of development. I, being a human is hard. There's no way not to be complicit. I think I said this on this podcast before, but I just, I think a preoccupation with purity just gets us into trouble. Totally. Right. And I had never thought of the way we talk about pure fun that way. Like, I think lifting up the idea that anything is pure, even fun, makes us probably too innocent. That doesn't mean that we should spend all our time wrapped in guilt, right? But just understand, just try to understand better, like, how complicated these things are. And I'm grateful to you for helping me understand how complicated this this chapter is. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. 
Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Now, having said everything that we've just said about this very complicated situation, can I bracket one moment and say, like, a place of unexpected fun? Yes. Thank you. So when... When the Weasleys arrive at the fireplace and it is blocked up in a way that Arthur didn't expect and they're all crammed in there and Fred and George are cracking wise to Ron, that's one of those situations where, like, you would describe it beforehand and be like, that's not fun. It's crammed (laughs) into somebody else's fireplace. But, like, you you could imagine the Weasleys, like, not even five years from now, like two days from now laughing about them all crammed in this fireplace before anything blew up and before all this stuff happened, right? Like, this is one of the places where, like, fun is is not a planned thing. Sometimes it's actually the thing you don't plan. But if you inhabit that space the right way, or then, then you can actually have some fun with it. Absolutely. One of my fondest, fondest memories is of my cousins and I were all, my brothers, we were all laughing and laughing and laughing. And we were at their grandfather's funerals shiva call. And like, he was old, so it wasn't tragic, you know, like all the things. And we were sharing memories. And in Shiva, it is actually the people who are grieving closest to the person are supposed to set the tone. So my cousins were setting the tone. And if they laugh, you're supposed to follow in laughter. And if they're crying, you're supposed to follow in tears. Like, it is like part of the ritual of Shiva to do that. But right, like if you would have said, okay, Vanessa, get into your hot, you know, Orthodox appropriate black long sleeve thing in the middle of summer in LA and go to this Shiva call. I would not have been like, do you know what? This is going to be real fun. But it was. And I don't know what we laughed about, but we just laughed for hours. There's something about shared experience, right? There's something about all of you and your cousins had to be in the same or similar uncomfortable clothing. Yeah. We're expected to maintain the same level of decorum or whatever, right? And, like, it's something about having to inhabit that together that that makes more fun. And I think that's that's the fireplace scene. I also think that's my family and I in the souvenir shops underneath the Eiffel Tower. It's just like, we're here together and this is just what we're doing and let's, let's enjoy it. Yeah. Totally. So, Vanessa, this week we are continuing a spiritual practice that we introduced with this book, which comes from the Buddhist scriptural interpretive tradition. And in English, it's known as the Four Reliances. And this is especially useful when people are trying to figure out the meaning of an opaque or an obscure passage. We're just going to use it to investigate a passage that I thought was interesting and I wanted to talk more about in this chapter. So this is 
at the point in the chapter when most of the Weasels have left and Harry is about to leave mm-hmm. uh, through the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And Harry turns to the Dursleys and says, well, bye then, Harry said to the Dursleys. They didn't say anything at all. Harry moved toward the fire, but just as he had reached the edge of the hearth, Mr. Weasley put out a hand and held him back. He was looking at the Dursleys in amazement. Harry said goodbye to you, he said. Didn't you hear him? It doesn't matter, Harry muttered to Mr. Weasley. Honestly, I don't care. Mr. Weasley did not remove his hand from Harry's shoulder. You aren't going to see your nephew till next summer, he said to Uncle Vernon in mild indignation. Surely you're going to say goodbye. So I just, I thought this was a really interesting moment in the chapter for a couple of reasons. First, it's Arthur just demanding that Harry be treated with like a bare minimum of respect, right? Like he's like, this is your nephew and he's leaving and you will not see him for a year. Say goodbye, right? Like he's not even asking the Dursleys to show him an appropriate level of love or affection. He's just saying, be polite. Just like pull it together to be polite for a second, right? <laughs> right. Which, I mean, they are horrified. Wizards just blew into their living room. I think it's a complicated situation, as we talked about. However, there's something about Arthur's just kind of like he wants to pause. He doesn't want to let Harry leave without signaling either to the Dursleys or to Harry or to both that he noticed that something was missing, right? The other reason I thought this is an interesting point in the chapter is because this is inadvertently, unwittingly, potentially a life-saving intervention, because it provides yeah. a pause, right? This There's a little delay in time. If Arthur just ignores this moment and they both leave in the flu network, then Dudley's tongue is swelling after they've all gone. And, you know, we, we hear in the text that his tongue swells to such a degree that he's starting to have trouble breathing. I don't know how much his tongue would swell. I don't know that Fred and George thought through this before they left this toffee. Like, it's potentially... You know, it could suffocate Dudley, and it, that's the only reason they're still around is because of this moment of righteous indignation. So it's just a—it seems like a really important passage to me, and I just thought maybe it's one that we could bring these this Buddhist reading practice to to see if anything else emerges from it. I love it. Thanks. Righteous indignation is my favorite feeling. <laughs> okay, so the four reliances have take four steps, like some of our other reading practices— The first step goes under the traditional name of the teaching, not the teacher. So what's important about the teaching is not who says it to you, but how it affects you Mm -hmm. and like what path it sets you on. So I actually talked a lot about this passage already. Like, how do what do you what do you think of and what do you feel when you when you read this passage? How does it speak to you in particular? I mean, I love that Arthur does this. I I think it's probably wrong to shame people on their manners. But the other side of that is that he's not being a passive bystander is something unkind is happening. And bystander syndromes really scare me. So these moments when we see something unjust or unkind or unfair happening and we say something just really mean a lot to me. And I, and I don't think that they always need to be as confrontational as what Arthur does. I love that Arthur is willing to be confrontational yeah. in this way. But I think if you see someone be rude to a service worker... When the rude person walks away saying to the service worker, are you okay? Right? Like I saw that and that sucked is often enough for when we're too scared to get involved. But mostly I just feel like, frick yeah, love you, Arthur Weasley. He's not letting a kid get mistreated on his watch. He loves muggles, but he's like, I'm not letting this stand. And I love it. I love people who are willing to confront 
cruelty and meanness and put themselves on on the line. And I just feel like Arthur's taking a risk here. He's like coming to someone's house and telling them how to treat their nephew. But I think he's right. And I love it. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I I think, you know, our chapter conversation was really illuminating to me in ways I find really meaningful. And we spent a lot of time talking about who and what Arthur, in his particular position of privilege, who and what he's not paying attention to, right? But like here we get a sense of who he is paying attention to, who is also a vulnerable person, who is a child in this house, who is subject to routine abuse, right? And like I think about in the hustle and bustle of everything that's going on, you just blew out the fireplace, the food network doesn't work quite right, and people are leaving, and Fred and George were upstairs, and we're trying to get back to wherever... And it would be really easy to just get in the fireplace and go, right? This is a fairly small detail. But like Arthur noticed, like there's a person he definitely cares about in that room and he's paying attention to how that person's treated. And there's something about that like sense of attention. So interesting to think about privileges as series of blinders, right? Like privilege is also a series of open doors, but it is also a series of blinders. If you walk through a bunch of open doors... Yeah. You might never realize that there are doors there. Right. <laughs> right? Like, you might not see the doors because you're too busy breezing Walking past through. them, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so it is like, there is something about awareness to it. So the second step of the four alliances is traditionally known as, as placing one's reliance on the meaning of the teaching rather than the letter of the teaching. And what this means practically is, well, practical, right? <laughs> In Buddhism... A teaching is important for what it has you do, less than for what it like, like the ideas around it, right? And Mm -hmm. so the kind of way we interpret this second reliance is to say, what do you do about this? Having had this passage speak to you in the way it's spoken to you, like what action follows from the insight you've gleaned? It makes me want to think about when I intervene, because right now I feel like, you know, I'm thinking about this a lot with the kids. I feel like I intervene when I want to and not like in a moment of pause and being like, is this a moment where I should intervene? I essentially intervene when I can't stand to see what I'm seeing. And that should not be the barometer for intervention. Yeah. And so I don't know. I want to spend some time reflecting on like what lines get crossed when I intervene in public with the kids. If one kid calls the other kid stupid, I'm like, don't do that. That she could believe you, even if it doesn't hurt the other one. But if one calls the other one a butt face, I don't say anything because they know their butts aren't their faces. And so I don't think there's a risk of hurt, (laughs) but it sometimes does hurt. And so maybe I should always intervene, even if I think there's zero chance for confusion. (laughs) What about you, Matt? What does this make you want to do differently? I talked about attention and who you were paying attention to and trying to be aware of or become aware of what you're not paying attention to. I mean, so the super easy answer for me is like, I want to pay better attention, which I feel like I say as like in all these scriptural reading practices, whenever there's a takeaway, I always end up with something like pay better attention. <laughs> like, so how do you actually do that? It's one thing to say that. But the whole problem here with Arthur is that he is not aware of what he's not attending to. Right. He is attending to Harry and does a great job attending to Harry, I think attending to this vulnerable one, but cannot see the ways in which he is not attending to others. So maybe the action is like before I like make a promise to like pay better attention is to like really spend some energy thinking about what does that actually look like? How does actually cultivating a habit of attending to those things, which I'm not even aware need my attention, what does that 
What's that look like for me in my life, right? Like not like in a general sense, but in the particularities of my own power and privilege and all those things, which is maybe just as loose an answer as pay better attention. But I'm trying to put a little bit more precision to it or at least put a little bit more like make it a little bit more concrete. So it's not just like a moral platitude, but actually something I can actually do. And at the end of the day, say to myself, did I do that today or not? Right. Right. Um, because if like Arthur, if I just say, like, did I pay attention today? I did. Like, because I'm not aware of all the things I wasn't paying attention to, right? Instead of saying, like, did I attend to some practice which will help me pay better attention to those things, which I invariably must not be paying attention to, because who can pay attention to everything all the time, right? I mean, interestingly, so much of Buddhist practice is about cultivating attention, and, like, that's why meditation is a big part of the practice. It's about actually honing one's habits of attention so that you can attend to the world better. I don't know. That's not, that's not me saying I'm going to pick up a new meditation practice, but... I do want to think more concretely about what cultivating better attention to those things I'm not even aware I'm not attending to would look like. Okay, step three. We should rely upon the definitive meaning of the passage, not the interpreted meaning. Mm. This is kind of a squishy thing, but the way that we are taking this third step and the way that many Buddhist interpreters have taken it is to say that, like, you know, language is a squishy thing and words change their meaning, but the meaning that they point to is more fixed and permanent. So it's one way to think about this step is like, what's the deep meaning of this of this passage? It's kind of like the sod, right? What's the, the deep secret? What's the thing which any two people, even though we're hearing different things about it and hearing it speak to our particular lives in different ways, what's the kind of one constant deeper meaning of what's going on in this passage? Do you have a sense, Vanessa? I think, Matt, the, the text is, again, this is something you and I have talked about a lot, is pointing towards Harry's goodness, right? Hmm. Harry turns and goes, well, by then, right? Like, Harry is still trying to reach out for connection. And I think that this comes really naturally to some people like Harry, and I think it's something that I want to try to cultivate within myself, that even amidst all this violence, like, this kid's humanity just keeps coming through. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think there's something about that line where Harry says to Arthur, it doesn't matter. Honestly, I don't even care. Like, I don't believe Harry, mm-hmm. right? I'm not sure he cares whether the Dursleys care. I think he cares that there's nobody to say goodbye to him, right? Yeah. yeah. That's that's the humanness of Harry, too, right? Like, this is, like, the deeper thing. Like, people deserve to be missed. People deserve to be longed for and loved. And whatever the truth of how much Harry cares or doesn't care about the Dursleys saying goodbye, he wants somebody to care about him, and that's what Arthur's doing in this moment. Yeah. Which is maybe the other truth of it, which is it doesn't matter that they didn't say goodbye, Mr. Weasley, because you noticed it and noticed that that I deserve to have that happen to me. And so, like, those truths kind of fold on to each other. But, yeah, I think it's related to yours. There's something about the humanness of it and also just, like, part of being human is wanting to feel valued and wanting people to miss you when you're gone and wanting to feel like you have a home to go to. And and Harry doesn't have that, but he's going to the burrow and he's going with Arthur, which is the closest thing he has right now, really. Okay. The fourth thing we rely upon in the four alliances is our practical wisdom or our wisdom, not our rationality, right? And this is kind of like the second step where where Buddhism wants to privilege like what a passage means as lived experience rather than sort of its rational logic or its ideas, right? But in this stage, it's thinking about experience. Like what experience from your own life or past does this passage bring up for you? Is there a, you know, a mini story or a, or a past experience that this calls to mind for you that helps you think through it and think about it or that it helps you think about and think through. 
what it's making me think of is the like utter meaningfulness of being witnessed a story that I've told many times in my life in the last week since it's happened is Rory got bit by another dog last week and the owner acted really unreasonably. She kept refusing to leash her dog or walk away and obviously risking that like something could keep happening. I don't know why. I'm always worried that people won't believe me when I tell a story, especially something like that I consider to be like dramatic. (laughs) And Ariana was there and it felt so good to have someone to get in the car with after and look at her and be like, that was wild, right? That this woman would not leash her dog and have Ariana be like, yes. And so I feel like Arthur and Harry have just created that connection where Harry can be like, isn't it wild that they won't say goodbye to me? Right? Like there's just something about making eye contact with someone else and having them witness something that really matters. I I don't know what to say except that it matters. What about you? Yeah, there's there's one like past experience that this is calling up to me and I'm not sure why. So I'm just going to start talking about it and see... (laughs) See if I can figure out why. See where we go. So when I got dropped off to college, I was in ROTC, Navy ROTC. So I went to college like a week early and basically a bunch of the older students, midshipmen, like would just spent the week making us run and do push-ups and yelling at us and stuff. So it wasn't a super fun experience and they made it very intense when we showed up. It wasn't like the classic college drop-off where you go to your dorm room. It was more like getting dropped off with people came out and grab your bags and yell at you and have you sign up for stuff and aren't very nice. And we had like, you know, an hour and a half after we dropped off our stuff with our families before we had to come back and muster for our first, the beginning of our thing. And so we, I went out to like dinner with my parents at a, you know, a little diner close to campus. And they were serving the drinks. My dad ordered an iced tea and the server brought over the iced tea and spilled the whole glass of iced tea in my dad's lap. And and my dad got so mad, right? But, but like, my dad doesn't get very outwardly mad. He doesn't have like a strong... That's why I gasped. Yeah, he doesn't have a strong temper. So I'm not even sure that the server knew he was that mad. I could tell he was mad because I've learned to read his like body <laughs> language and actions. So he was super mad and like, like really furious. And I remember even in that moment knowing this is not about the iced tea. <laughs> right. This is I am stressed and they're dropping off their kid at college, which is, you know, you, you know, you're used to having somebody at home every day and tomorrow he's not going to be home every day. Right. And like all this stuff was going on and like we were paying attention to the wrong thing. But it was also because it was easy to pay attention to. Like I can get mad at the iced tea and I can get mad at the server because I can't be mad that a big part of me right now doesn't want to happen is happening. Right. Like and I think all of us were feeling that at the table. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know. If, I don't know why this is the experience that came up, but something about paying attention to the right thing, something about wanting to be missed and the nature of goodbyes and all this stuff. Yeah, I don't know what the connection is, but, you know, maybe with the four alliances, you don't always have to have a connection. It's just it's stirring up some memory for me. Maybe I'll talk to my dad about it next time I see him and see see if he remembers it. Matt, thanks so much. I really love this practice and I'm really grateful for you to teach us and lead us through it again. Thanks, Vanessa. I feel like we're starting to get into the rhythm of the practice. It takes some time to kind of get accustomed to it and let it form us a little bit. I think it's starting to work. Thanks. Now is the time in the week when we hear a voice memo from one of our listeners. And this voice memo is from Michael. Hello, Vanessa, Matt, and the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Michael. I wanted to share a reading on the theme of friendship in Book 3, Chapter 8. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A major failure of friendship in this chapter is Sirius using Lupin as a weapon against Snape. The text acknowledges what would have happened to Snape if he made it into the Shrieking Shack, but there would have been horrible repercussions for Lupin as well. If Lupin had attacked or killed Snape, he likely couldn't stay at Hogwarts. Even more, he would have been traumatized because of Sirius's actions. Sirius's prank was hugely selfish and was an utter failure of friendship towards Lupin. Sirius put his grudge against Snape above Lupin's well-being and tried to use Lupin when he was at his most vulnerable, without his consent. I see this as similar to someone who has a friend with a marginalized identity, but instrumentalizes their friend and puts them in harm's way. Sometimes they do this to prove a point or make a joke at their friend's expense, as Sirius did. I want to offer a blessing for Lupin, who should not have been used by his friend in this way. I also want to bless anyone who has been mistreated like this, and to say that Sirius's behavior was unacceptable. He put both his enemy and his friend at risk of harm for selfish reasons, and Lupin would be absolutely justified if this event had caused him to reconsider their friendship. It doesn't seem that Sirius even realizes the harm he caused to Lupin by this choice. He says Snape deserved it, which is doubtful, but Lupin did not deserve it. People who are isolated are often put in more danger of tolerating unacceptable treatment from those people who are in their lives. Sometimes people can't stand up for themselves in these circumstances, but I would love to see Lupin confront his friend about this failure. It's not okay, and it doesn't have to be ignored. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. Michael, thank you so much for that voice memo. I have to confess, I hadn't thought about the implications for Lupin either, and they're absolutely real. And you're right, and it is a real failure of friendship. 
on Sirius's part and reveals him, you know, as a selfish adolescent in ways that, you know, we I think we see repeat in the end of this book when he seems kind of reckless and careless and doesn't seem to be paying enough attention to other people's vulnerabilities, which is a theme in this episode. We've been talking about how that works out in the chapter we read for today as well. And I think that that the same analysis could be used in thinking about about Sirius. Yeah. So thank you for thank you for your voice memo and for your thoughts and for helping us see what other vulnerabilities and dangers are going on here and and how Sirius is, you know, walking through these doors of privilege and not even paying attention to who might be shut out by those same doors. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much. I feel like the theme for today's episode is it's hard to be human. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Henrik, who was 22, loved pancakes, memes, and programming. Zachary Zwitch, who's 35, a son, brother, father, and lover of the outdoors. Opa, who's 83, and a beloved grandpa and a lover of fishing. Matthew Thorson, who was 52, a gentle soul, artist, and an absolute inspiration. Issa Limlick Libsen Hest, who was a very loved baby. Agape Asante, who was 29, a teacher of love, yoga, and community. And Debbie, who was 52, a mum, best friend, and guardian. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, it's now time for blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Dudley this week. We talked around Dudley a little bit, and we talked about how how Dudley had... His tongue engorged, and it may have been life-threatening, and it certainly was unpleasant. And Dudley has just had these awful experiences with wizards. I mean, he's not a kind adolescent. He also doesn't have a great life at home. But his encounters with the wizarding world have all been really troubling. It makes sense that he's scared. I know that there's a lot of humor in this chapter about him, you know, with his hands over his rear, because that's the place from which he had had the pigtail removed. He's had a hard time of it. And we know what else is coming in his encounters with wizards in the books to come. Though they had a hard chapter. So he has my blessing. Vanessa, who are you blessing? I am blessing Mr. Weasley. I was so hard on him this week. I obviously do not think he was perfect, but I think he is a good man who is trying to be good in a hard world. And those are my favorite kinds of people, people who are trying to be good. And so as hard as I am on him, I just want to offer a blessing for Mr. Weasley because he is trying. And I love this moment of intervention with Harry. Vanessa, next week we are reading book four, chapter five with Casper Turkile. Woo! Chapter five is called Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. And we're going to be reading it through the theme of healing. Can't wait. Love that guy. 
Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. Matt and I are going on tour. You can catch us in Somerville, Massachusetts or Denver, Colorado. Find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. We also have a summer camp. You can find out more about that at NotSorryWorks.com. We have pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com and we have a romance writing class. You can find out about all of those at notsorryworks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced and cajoled and timed and we adore AJ Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull and we're distributed by ACAST. We'd like to thank Michael for this week's voicemail. Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you next week with Caspa. Or as he says to people at Starbucks, Casper? Like the friendly ghost? Casper? Casper like the ghost? <laughs> I know, I like, I like his American accent. <laughs>